Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today we are diving back again into Everyday Stalinism by Sheila Fitzpatrick. We're coming to the the last part of the book where uh, she looks at the experience of everyday life under the great Stalinist terrors of the 1930s. And to begin with, uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick makes a, a key distinction between surveillance states and terror states, um, the former being generally more prevalent um, than, than, than the latter. She writes, Surveillance means the population is watched. Terror means that its members are subject to an unpredictable but large-scale basis um, to arrest, execution and other forms of state violence. A society under surveillance does not have to be a society under terror. For example, the German Democratic Republic of the 70s and the 80s was relatively free of terror, although it was watched over by the Stasi, that overachieving pupil of the, pupil of the NKVD, with a thoroughness unparalleled in the history of state security. But there, are obvi- but there is an obvious relationship between surveillance and terror. The same institutions that are used and many of the same processes are involved. In the Soviet Union, where waves of terror against different groups were, um, of the population started with the Civil War and occurred periodically thereafter throughout the uh, pre-war period, the relationship was particularly close. Surveillance was an everyday reminder of the possibility of terror. Um, the, there are numerous accounts of... Um, an obsessional fear uh, about being uh, coming under surveillance um, because really of the the extreme consequences that that, that, that would that would entail um, when somebody had been denounced uh, everybody uh, surrounding them was desperate to distance themselves to be as far away from that individual as possible to have no contact with them 
um, and not to be associated with them and try to kind of erase as much as possible any connection with them because they knew that it was entirely possible that they had been watched um, that um, inf information had been passed about them that the person themselves in interrogation had denounced their neighbours, their friends, their associates and anybody else that, that they knew and so um, uh, so widespread with the denunciations and so widespread did they reach that it creates a general sense of permanent anxiety in society that somebody somewhere may have said something about you. Um, so the, ins the instruments um, of the state uh, that uh, are used to conduct um, uh, organised um, surveillance uh, and, and terror helped in uh, popular kind of thought to create a kind of a distinction between the, the, the individual and the state or, the, or, the, or society at large and the state. The state was them and society was, was us. Um, and this was um, obviously kind of contrary to most of the kind of the, the, the intentions and the objectives uh, of the regime. Um, the idea of uh, in the, the kind of the sanctity of individual space and thought was, you know, a kind of an, an anathema to the regime, but also the idea of a society that was independent of the state, or that saw itself as independent of the state, or that was um, organised um, a kind of in opposition to the state, or, or organised uh, self-organising. Um, in a kind of uh, in contrast to the state, these, these were definitely not uh, Soviet goals. But this is what ultimately state security and terror terror achieves. It is very important, right, Sheila Fitzpatrick, for us to understand that this was how Soviet citizens perceived these the, these processes uh, as them and us. But it's also important to realise that this analysis, in many ways, is unsatisfactory in a society with almost a million office holders ranging from powerful figures to petty, poverty-stricken officials in, out in the countryside. Uh, where does the boundary line between them and us lie? Moreover, if they are the people who have their access to state power through officeholding, how can a terror like the Great Purges in which officeholders were primary victims be understood in them, and, uh, uh, in them uh, against us terms? So... Uh, th this was one of the, the kind of the experiences of totalitarian regimes in the 20th century. That the boundary line between the regime and the individual is is infinitely blurred. Um, that the regime, like it talks here, about a million office holders, one um, percent of the population or, or thereabouts, um, becomes uh, you know diffuse throughout society. Also. Um, the extent to which societies collaborate in, in the terror against them have been through denunciations, uh, through informants, and various other ways that uh, individuals can uh, work collaboratively uh, with, with a repressive state. Uh, it, it clouds these, um, the, these lines much to the benefit of the, uh, of the machinery of state repression. Uh, for a society... Um, the experience of of terror is more complicated than simply just the victims themselves and, and, and their suffering and the, and the families uh, and the fear uh, of other people in the, in the population uh, that they might become victims. So uh, the, the the broader societal experience of terror involves 
victimizing so it involves the individual choosing to uh, to victimize others be they wearing a uniform or if they are um, seeing themselves as mentally and emotionally allied to the state uh, and thus engaging in a, in a, in a process of, of denunciation there was a, a fascinating episode many many years ago now about 20 years ago of the Nazis a warning from history um, uh, which was um, a Lawrence Reese documentary uh, with um, closely collaborating with uh, Ian Kershaw. Uh, and at the end, in one of the episodes, they um, interviewed um, now a quite elderly lady at the time about how she had denounced um, a neighbour who uh, had been living a kind of what seemed to be an unconventionally German lifestyle. I think the subtext was that the neighbour might have been might have been gay. Um, this was a woman who had female friends coming around uh, to stay, and nobody knew anything about this woman. And so they, they denounced her, and, of course, the Gestapo take this person into protective custody. They think there's something kind of un-German about her. She's not behaving in a, a, the way that a good German should. And she was disappeared into various camps and, uh, and, and died sometime during the war. Now, the woman in question... Um, this is at the end of her life, many years later, said things like, well, you know, we were only doing what we thought was proper at the time. And we, um, and as the woman revealed, she hadn't really been prompted to do any of these things. That there had been, it hadn't been like a, a message from the government saying, can be a, be a good informant. She had volunteered this information because she was keeping vigilant for the Fuhrer, she was doing her bit. And it's that kind of degree of participatory stuff that, uh, that a culture of denunciation, um, that, uh, that um, creates a culture of de- denunciation, uh, of uh, people listening to what it is they think that the state or the charismatic uh, leader is saying, and then interpreting that will in ways that they think is 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 appropriate, um, and so totalitarian states, be they Soviet or Nazi or Maoist or whatever, have an enormous power to corrupt others uh, and to corrupt uh, kind of the, the 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 basic functionings of of, of human morality, um, without even really having to do much of the asking. So Sheila Fitzpatrick writes. This is also true of the individual experience of terror. Even people who never voluntarily denounced their fellow citizens in the Great Purges failed to defend friends who were publicly pilloried, cut off contact with families of enemies of the people, and in a host of ways found themselves becoming participants in the process of terror. One of the most useful functions of of the them and us framework for Soviet citizens, uh, and a major reason why historians should approach it warily, was it obscured this unbearable fact. It becomes very easy, long after the terror has ended, to point at the, at the evil state, um, uh, but much, much harder to admit one's own participation uh, in it. Uh, and so, if you are looking at things from a social history point of view, um, looking at the, the actions of, of people, looking at the, how society functioned at the time, um, is as useful, if not slightly more so, than trying to understand what it is the state does. Um, it's quite easy to, to understand understand that, that bit. The second bit, not so much. Um, there were obviously many waves of terror, um, and uh, each of them 
um, affected um, different victim groups um, in um, in different ways, um, for, um, and left many in the the prisons and the gulags and others uh, with more, far more grisly fates. So at the end of the nineteen twenties and the and the beginning of the nineteen thirties, it was of course the the war against the kulaks. Uh, the NEP men, the, um, uh, the privateers, the profiteers who'd made money from the new economic policy, um, priests, um, and to some degree the, the, um, uh, the bourgeois specialists. Uh, the, the most famous trial at the end of the 1920s was the Shakti trial, um, where uh, en- engineers uh, were put on trial from the, uh, the region of Shakti, um, where they, who, which is a kind of famous coal mining region, where and they were accused of um, of sabotage. Um, the Soviet Union had to constantly uh, reinvent this kind of uh, persecution narrative that um, anything that was going wrong was really the result of external sabotage. It was um, external um, uh, external powers, uh, anti-Soviet powers, uh, and internal uh, internal wreckers. Uh, and many of the the bourgeois specialists, the uh, members of the uh, uh, middle classes who were engineers and agronomists and things like that from the previous regime, um, that had to be in some way dealt with. Um, and as Stalin saw it, um, these were kind of uh, enemy class elements who had made a temporary truce with uh, the revolution, but were unlikely to to maintain that. Um, and so, uh, at the end of the 1920s, just at the time when Stalin really needs to be using these people effectively to industrialise Russia, instead he's waging a kind of a, 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 a war uh, against them. So, in 1935, following the murder of Kirov, um, the party boss of Leningrad, the um, old privileged classes uh, of the um, party and the former oppositionists in the in, in the party uh, and the Komsomol were the next wave of class enemies to be uh, got rid of. Following that comes the great the, the great terror, the great purges. Uh, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Um, which focus on the communist elite, but they kind of spill out into wider society. Denunciation uh, and the belief in connections and conspiracies um, cause the, the terror to kind of spread far beyond the, uh, the immediate party. Um, so here we're going to try to look for the most part at the Great Terror of 1937-38, which was you know, the, the, the fundamental terror episode of um, the, 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 the Stalinist era, uh, but obviously, as I said, not the only one. Um, and it was a um, a historical um, epoch, historical moment. But the Great Terror is also slightly different. Previously, when the Nep men and the Kulaks and the priests and the former people and all this kind of stuff, when they're targeted, they were referred to as class enemies. So that meant if you're not in that class, you're probably going to be all right. Though during the Great Terror... Um, the the concept of uh, enemies of the regime expands, and instead we just wind up with enemies. So uh, the, the the terror could be far more widespread, far more in, indiscriminate. Um, the um, idea that um, those that did not belong to these categories, this this idea that those that didn't belong to these categories were were free from the risk of terror, that seems to kind of evaporate in 1937 38. Um, not to, it's probably unlikely that that many Soviet citizens had a great deal of faith in the previous um, system of, of of terror that they could be kind of exempted if they if they weren't kulaks. Nobody had that great not that degree of, of faith in the regime in terms of its kind of organisation or its vindictiveness. Um, so Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, The Great Purge has introduced a new de- a definition of the target of terror, enemies of the people. In one sense, this was simply a code term indicating that in this terror, in contrast to previous ones, the hunt for enemies should focus particularly on the communist elite. But in another sense, it marked a destruction of the previous conceptual boundaries of terror. Enemies no longer had any specific attributes like class. Anyone could turn out to be an enemy. Soviet terror was random. There were two distinct ways, broadly, that the, the terror was understood in Russia. Uh, a, uh, a kind of like a, a targeted, detailed, um, structural understanding of the terror, and a more broader, more fatalistic notion of, of what the terror was. Um, there were for those who were members of the party um, who were most at risk of the terror, um, the idea that the terror was some kind of giant accident or uh, a misfortune was that was a kind of an, an anathema to their thinking. Um, there was um, a it, uh, because it it, it is, was so destructive, uh, so largely pointless that there was a, a desire to find some kind of reason in it, some kind of uh, idea of, of who was benefiting 
some uh, belief that um, that Stalin himself um, was enacting this this dreadful plan. I'm sure, of course, he is um, for his own uh, own discernible uh, discernible gain. Though often it's hard to see quite what Stalin got out of the terror him himself. There is uh, a, a, across the majority of the population, there was a, a deep fatalism, um, a sense that the terror was one of these uh, great misfortunes like war or famine or pestilence that sometimes have to be endured. Um, the idea that there's a reason for these misfortunes um, was um, that that's not doesn't really kind of enter the conversation. It is just sort of one of one of those unfortunate things. Um, and this is probably more, more prevalent in, in, in Russian public thinking uh, than the, uh, the, the, the view that um, it was a kind of a, a scheme of, 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 the, um, of Stalin himself, uh, which actually, of course, it, it is. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, Moreover, what happened in 1937-38 affected the lower classes of the population, excluding outcasts and marginals, much more than the elites. For peasants, there was no comparison with the great trauma of the decade, collectivisation. For urban workers, the hunger at the beginning of the decade and the punitive tightening of labour discipline at the end of it loomed larger on the scale of misfortune. Um, by the beginning of 1937, both educated and uneducated Russians were seeing signs that a time of national misfortune was at hand. Both important, uh, the most important proximate cause uh, for this perception was the failure of the 1936 harvest, which in the following winter and spring led to hunger in the countryside, breadlines in the towns, and a panicky fear that things would get still worse, uh, as in 1932-33. In the countryside, rumours of imminent famine, turmoil and war uh, flew around, as they had done during collectivisation. So there were, of course, other contributing factors. Since the start of the first five-year plan and collectivisation, the regime and society had been under uh, constant and, and extreme stresses. Um, the uh, five-year plans themselves had led to immense um, poverty and overcrowding and shortages in towns and cities, and, of course, collectivisation um, in the countryside is, is sort of uh, verging on um, a, a second Soviet uh, civil war, second Russian civil war. Um, and the, uh, there are mounting fears about the international situation, what is happening beyond Germany's border, uh, Russia's borders, particularly with Nazi Germany, are deeply alarming. After the murder of um, Kirov, um, former oppositionists... Um, become targets of terror. Zinoviev and Kamenev were tried um, twice, and in 1936 they, they are, are executed for uh, responsibility with the assassination of Kirov, which of course they weren't involved at all. So it's worth remembering um, when one becomes kind of uh, emotional for certain victims of the terror that one of, Ka one of Zinoviev's early pronouncements was that um, if the Soviet regime had to kill 10 million Russians, then probably that would be the right thing to do. So uh, none of the, uh, or very few of those who were members of the regime, 
were particularly angelic figures in, in, in themselves, uh, not to suggest that being uh, falsely accused of a crime and shot is uh, a kind of somehow justified. Um, as the party continued to purge itself of undesirable members, writes Sheila Fitzpatrick, um, the process uh, became more and more vicious, no longer just a matter of expulsion, but um, often of arrest. Almost 9% of those expelled in the most recent party purge, um, a, po a total of more than 15,000, had been arrested as spies, kudangs, white guards, and scoundrels of various kinds. Yezhov told, Yezhov told the um, Central Committee in December 1935. And there would have to be more arrests, he added. Uh, as one speaker at this meeting put it, uh, as soon as those expelled from the party get home, they start getting involved in counter-revolutionary activity. They should be smoked out before the real trouble occurs. And, and there you have one of the most compelling explanations for the terror, in that you have a revolutionary society based on the, the endless fear that the revolution will be overturned or that external elements will conspire with internal troublemakers to destroy the revolution. And that requires everybody to show uh, a never kind of ceasing level of revolutionary purity. And the way that you do that is by uh, utter loyalty and sycophancy towards Stalin. Um, and even that might not save you because you just need to be named by the wrong uh, person, uh, being associated with the wrong kind of person, uh, and then you know you're in you're in big trouble. Um, and the um, the the, revel the the kind of the the Marxist-Leninist view of history that um, inevitably there would be attempts to overthrow the revolution from capitalist societies, um, the like you know, and the Russian Civil War gives plenty of evidence of that. Uh, means that. Uh, the, the state has to be constantly suspicious. It has to be a constant surveillance state, as we mentioned at the start of the of the podcast. But also, as the international situation deteriorates and war comes, uh, or war seems more and more likely, more and more imminent, the state then has to consider what will we do if the Germans cross the border, or the Poles cross the border, or the Japanese cross the border? What will we do? Well, the first thing we'll have to do is find all the people who are most likely to want to help them and kill them first because they are the army waiting within our borders. Uh, they are the secret dangerous threat within. And that concept of the threat within, the fact that um, as a, uh, a revolution in, in 1917 that the, um, the, the, the business was never quite completed, that the, the enemy classes, the, the bad kinds of people, they were never really got rid of. And, the, uh, and those that uh, did sort of survive somehow, they went to ground and pretended to be good socialists and pretended to be good Soviet citizens. But reality, and reality or in reality, the, the belief was that this wasn't the case that they are um, hiding behind masks. And I've mentioned many times before, there was this obsession between, uh, from the regime about what lay behind the mask, what, the, what was happening internally in people's thinking and their um, uh, conceptions of, uh, of everyday reality. Um, uh, uh, what, what, what were people hiding? Stalin famously says of the Kulaks, essentially they're very good actors, 
that they can wear a mask sometimes that presents them as a good party citizen. But really, there's an, en an enemy lurking in there, so you've got to root them out. And the final logic, of course, to all of this is that if you shoot a uh, hundred innocent men and get one guilty one, the logic of the regime is that's basically okay. Uh, whereas uh, um, th this is kind of like a a an anathema to you know Western liberal thinking. Anyway, thanks very much for listening to the podcast, and I'll catch you on the the next edition. Um, we are um, going to be putting out lots of new content on on Patreon in the next few months so do check us out there and if you're able to fund the podcast that's great uh, and also check out the Explaining History Facebook group there's always something going on there um, and um, yes have yourselves a, uh, a great day and check out our new website www.explaininghistory.org where you can see um, the latest uh, videos that I've posted and also any, any blog content that, that there is thanks very much everybody all the best bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.